out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is The C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. As you know, we love a special guest. This week is going to be the turn of the late 80s, early 90s band Rig, all the way from Manchester, because I spoke to guitarist Darren Jones very recently to find out more about life, love, poetry and all the other groovy stuff. And they've been going through their archives and have um, been bringing out or certainly sorting out their back catalogue. Um, they have an album out called Perfect, which is, uh, came out last year on Dead, Dead, Good Records. And um, I do believe there are other bits and pieces that are here, there and everywhere with more plans to uh, archive their material. So do check it out. Anyway, look, after several minutes of casual chat, we got down to that very exciting subject that was, yes, you've guessed it, the early formative years. It's a great starting place. Anyway, Darren, tell us more. Tell us everything. Uh, oh, gosh, my formative moment. So I'm a bit, I was... Um, a child of the 70s so um, my the first significant thing I can remember was seeing the jam on top of the pops which right. would have been around 1978 I think because they still had the suits on um, yes. and that got me interested but actually going back further um, my mum had a, um, uh, a record player one of those lovely old sideboards Yes. Um, and sort of in the centre, if the centre was was the record player, then you had two huge speakers, but it's like a huge sort of, um, sort of teak sideboard. And then the albums went in the went in the sides, either side. And um, I I think I must have been about four or five when I was allowed to um, use the record player. And there were just two albums that stuck out for me, just for the covers. And thankfully, they were um, Beatles for Sale yeah, and um, Please Please Me. So I just listened to those as a, as a child and just learned them off, off by heart. And I just, just became obsessed with them. God, that's um, fantastic. And so I was very lucky. So then my mum was um, sort of humoured me with, with a lot of the 60s stuff um, and I sort of got into the kinks. Um, and then bought the, yeah, getting into the, it was 78 when I first sort of became aware of music from my, sort of uh, era um yeah and that was that was the jam so yes well it was interesting because when I was growing up I think my parents got married in the 50s and this was in the countryside in East Anglia so I think with that generation who were working class I mean they sold just about everything just to buy a, you know a house because no one ever borrowed money or had debt and it was only in the early 70s you know a record player you know re you know kind of appeared and there was a couple of records my parents bought they were into really bad country and western but my older brother who was seven years older was um he was a bit more prog rock and he but then he also had he bought sergeant pepper by the beatles and, uh, obviously and uh, elton john goodbye yellow brick road this was kind of the early 70s now i look back and thought god the beatles had only just broken up but it did seem like the beatles were way back there but you thought oh that was only three or four years ago that they'd broken up but you seem like yesterdays but i consumed those records constantly thinking god this is quite mesmerizing really you know and at the time there was no kind of cultural context it was just like well they're just a couple of albums that are kind of just yeah. and um yeah i became obsessed and then he got into wish um yes and wishbone ash and barker james harvest and genesis and and the solo work of rick wegman which i loved because i was young and impressionable and i thought he was brilliant so um <laughs> okay. i completely and he hated punk and so i didn't ever get punk until the late 70s and early 80s really so 
But, but coming yeah. from the countryside, you're always a long way behind everything. So where were you brought up? At Manchester. So, right. yeah, South Manchester. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Just a bit different, because we had, in the early 80s, we had the Farmers Boys, Serious Drink, and, and the Higsons. I mean, Jesus, I mean, fill your boots. You know, that's not great, is it? Yeah. Yeah, some of them are okay. It's sort of, yeah. Higsons, I think, I think so yeah, I remember you... them. I think. Yeah, the Higsons. That was Charlie Higsons, you know, from the Far yeah. Show. But kind of, you wouldn't, you wouldn't know many of their records. Serious Drinking, I think there was one called Love on the Terrace or Drinking on the Terrace, which is a novelty song, really. So when did you first start playing an instrument? Um, so um, I think I persuaded my parents to get me a guitar for, for oh gosh, when I was about 12 or something. By this time, I, I, luckily I saw the jam just before they split up in 92. Um, that's all I wanted to do, play guitar. Um, stuck it under my bed for five years, like everyone does. Um, and then came out again about 86, 87, by which point I was obsessed with the Smiths, like everyone of a certain age at that point. Yes, um, God, we loved the Smiths, didn't we? It was just everything yeah. as well. So when you first got the guitar, because the it was, 19, it was 1982, Jam, yeah, yeah, about 82, 83, I reckon. 82. Yeah. I think they were they were t- doing one last tour, weren't they? And, and that was kind of, yeah, about 82. So, yeah, it was kind of interesting because at that time, there would have been the sort of punk period and then that post-punk world of, like, the Nightingales and the Gang of Four and Fall and Pear yeah. and, and uh, Public Image Limited, which, frankly, I find a bit difficult. But, you know, it was a kind of... You know, you pretend you like it, but you, you know, it's quite hard. And then you had the sort of world of, of you know, Simple Minds and U2 and, and um, Julian Cope and Teardrop Explodes and bands like that, but and Echo and the Bunnymen. But it was, for me, indie pop, this is my theory anyway, was between the years of 83 to 87, which was the years of the Smiths, because I thought that was a game-changing moment. So from Manchester, were you, um, yes, were they really big on your radar? Um, well, to start with, um, I didn't really get them um probably until about the fourth album then i went to um i just don't know why i just wasn't interested um i don't know i was musically yeah they just they just didn't my our past just didn't cross and then i went to the festival of the 10th summer at gmex which was a big show um and i went to see new order new order were headlining was that what um, Tony Wilson put on? Was that Yeah, him? Tony Wilson put it on to celebrate the 10 years since the, the Free Trade Hall show right. or the, the Sex Pistols gigs, the couple of gigs they did in, in 76. So in 86, we had, uh, I think, the Fall played, Certain Ratio, and Smiths. And, uh, but I went to watch New Order, um, but the Smiths came on at tea time, um, about 6 o'clock. I just remember the sun was going down and all it was... It was it's sort of in GMAX, which is all glass at the sides, where it was at that point. Um, and the Smiths did a full set, like sort of one and a half hours. And it was mainly, it was essentially the, the Queenie's Dead tour. And uh, the next day, I just went out and bought every Smiths record. I just I hadn't seen anything like it before in my life. I thought they were incredible. Yes. Live, they were just, yeah, they were just one of the best things I've ever seen. So then the, uh, then the guitar came back from under the bed. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. <laughs> that was it. I was going to I was going to be um the Smiths broke up the next year and I was going to be uh I, my band was going to be uh, the next Smiths. 
<laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> pick, up, pick up their mantle. <laughs> yes, there was a, there was a whole gap then, wasn't there? Just just to be filled by the next band. Yes, this is true. Absolutely. And did it kind of come quite easily to you playing guitar? Uh, I, yeah, I think so. Sort of. It was. Um, I, I was very never. I was enthusiastic. I was. Not, I was not a technical guitarist. I was just enthusiastic. I think. Yes. Had you come across all those? Because Cherry Red Records has just put out that um, seven CD box set of bands from Manchester. And yeah. what is quite boggling is just the, the quality of it as well, just the amount of material. So was 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 there quite a, a vibe in, in the city of, of kind of music? There was, because sort of on, on, on the back of the Smiths or Bubbling Under, there are a lot of bands um, like James, early James, um, sort of the man from Del Monte, um, and there were a lot of bands that appeared subsequently on sort of compilation albums. Um, there was two: there was one called Home, one called Hit the North, um, and that was a bit later on. I think that was nineteen ninety. But a lot of these bands have been bubbling around for for a while since then. Um, sort of mainly sort of guitar-based bands, but always sort of quite odd, yeah, and um, not very mainstream, um, and so. Yeah, it felt like the, there was a, a bit of a scene um, in, in sort of 87, 88. Um, it just didn't have much focus, really. Yeah, and I suppose, actually, because a lot of the bands that I've interviewed from that indie world of the 80s, most of them, well, a lot of them, were on the sort of either unemployed or job seekers allowance or enterprise allowance schemes, which were... Enterprise allowance scheme, yeah, that was I was on that for a year. Yes, Fantastic. a £1,000 yeah. in the bank account, which just magically appears, doesn't it? Like, oh, yes, yeah. here's, here's the £1,000 <laughs> in my bank account. Don't ask questions. Yeah. Yes, I know there's quite, quite a lot of the bands have said, oh, yes, we did that. And that kind of gave us a, a one-year apprenticeship, really, or just the ability to yes. get drunk for a whole year. It's quite a close thing. So, yes, 87 comes along, the Smiths break up, ecstasy hits, indie pop, and suddenly all these indie bands, Big Flame included, all kind of give it up, don't they, like the June Brides, and um, yeah, yeah, no, lots of those kind of beautiful songs. Uh, yeah, because most bands I've found have a five-year narrative. They get together, 12 months, it's a honeymoon period. First single, you know, John Peel plays it, they get a John Peel session, all good. And then the first album, things are going really well. Then the tour around the art centres, it just couldn't be better. Then the second album, a bit tricky. And then they think, oh, we hate each other and we've got no money. So they split up. So, so Norm, you know, around 87, there was this kind of, for me, there's a real feeling of, oh dear, the party's over. That's a sweeping statement because obviously there's all these other bands still happening. But the, the ecstasy happens and then this kind of the dance scene, you know, the next wave of 16 to 18 year olds. Actually, it was your fault, wasn't it, really? They want their soundtrack, yeah. don't they? It's, it's yeah. you who, who sort of wiped out all the June brides, basically. <laughs> Yeah, well, we it was um, it did it did hit and it did land and it was um, I, I don't think um, well I was in I was in a band from school so that's what, what happened with me I, I formed a band um, at school with um, a couple of pals and we rehearsed over the summer probably in eighty seven in summer in my mum's back room with an old um, Spectrum. Um, with a Spectrum computer and it had um, a, a spec drum attached, you could buy this little attachment. And so it, it was like a little drum machine on, the, on a ZX Spectrum computer. So um, we didn't have a drummer. Um, and so 
I think we finished um, finished that summer with written a couple of songs and doing awful cover versions of Love Will Tear Us Apart. And then we went into back into school because the school had a drum kit. Um, but then there was, we saw an advert, there was an advert for um, someone which had previously been to our school and was now at, at college and was doing a sound recording course and wanted to record bands. So he'd, he'd put a notice up and he turned out to be a drummer. So we went along, did some recording, and he drummed for us, and um, and that was sort of the basis basis of the band, really. Um, a couple of the guys left because they were going to university. One of our guitarists was Tom Wainwright. He went on to um, decide the, the sort of the music, the jingly jangly music ones for him, and he went to be a hacienda DJ. Right. And sort of Tom's quite famous in his own right. Um, and then by then it was sort of 1988 and our drummer brought with us, um, brought with him some different influences. I was really getting into talking heads um, sort of retrospectively. And um, yeah, I just wanted to recreate Cross-Eyed and Painless from Stop Making Sense in every, every song we were doing. <laughs> so that's, that's where we sort of went. And um, it was, yeah, it was, we had a sort of a different sound. It took it took quite a few years to get to where we wanted to get to. Um, yeah. By that point, everyone had lost interest, but we had good fun on the way doing it. Yeah, well, you know, it was. I suppose what was quite lucky about that period, um, and it was kind of the nineties as well. It might have been the seventies, but I can't remember really. I was too young. But there was the gate. You know, we had these great access to sort of, I suppose, the media. Um, you know, there was the gatekeepers, weren't there? You know, you had John Peel, who was four nights a week, probably, I don't know, something like that, um, Monday till Thursday night, you know, for a couple of hours playing really obscure and new music from all over the place. And then you had three weekly music papers as well, you know, like the NME, yeah. Sounds and Melody Maker, which again, you know, talking to people in America, they were just like, my God, you can't believe how lucky that was. Because if you just have a monthly magazine and it's, you know, one of those major ones, you know, the chances of a young little band getting in and creating any splash in those is kind of really limited, whereas people are desperate for, you know, uh, content really in a, a weekly music paper. And also it kind of creates that industry of kind of photographers as well as writers. And also the other thing that every sort of town and city in, in the UK, and let's face it, it's a tiny little place, has a in, in an alternative indie night, doesn't it really? Absolutely, yeah. Well, we've... Manchester, we had, yeah, it went through, you know, Thursday night was Hacienda of the Indie Night, then you had the Ritz on a Monday, venue on a Thursday, uh, then away, go on a Saturday. Yes, and then, and then around the country, you know, you had the, was it the Duchess in Leeds, then the Princess Charlotte in Leicester, and then Harlow, the Square in Harlow, and the Art Centre in Norwich, and then all the, you know, all these, you know, George yeah. Roby in London and all those other places, as well as Bristol, Glasgow. I won't go around the whole country with the Indian. No, <laughs> we played most of those. It was brilliant. The venues were great. Those little sort of, you know, those tiny little venues were sort of, yeah, it was, it was great. It was sort of a yeah, well-established well, route that everyone took around the country. Yes, and when you look at those posters that people keep putting up, you know, you'd have three bands and you went, oh, God, they're quite good bands for three pound or four pound. It was like, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Have paid more attention because you kind of think it's just going to last, don't you? So, um, so you, yes, so you got into the recording studio quite quickly, yeah. Well, we were, we were lucky because, um, our, our drummer Jonathan, um, he worked at Strawberry Studios. One of his first jobs was, was he was sort of 
um, I think he was sort of a young um, engineer there. Um, and also our singer, Adam, he sort of had a sort of, a bit of part-time role there trying to tout for business or something. I don't know. I think he sort of just made it up. Um, but the point being is that we would sneak in overnight um, and use the recording facilities. So as soon as the sort of normal people would finish work and go home, we'd go into the studio and record through the night. So we did a lot of our... Normally, the bands sort of earn their crust by going out and playing live and then doing that. But we were sort of... Um, we spent a lot of time in the studio first, um, messing around and having fun and um, yeah, trying out all sorts of all sorts of different things. And then yes. that, that's, our, our first single, I think, came out of some of those sessions as well that we did overnight. Yeah, we were very very fortunate because <clears throat> there was a book recently, oh. wasn't, wasn't there, about that Manchester recording scene? I can't remember. Oh God, who was he? And uh, was it Strawberry Studios? Was that the guy from Ten CC had financed that? Yes. Yeah, that's right. And um, they've just they've just done a huge um, sort of a, a year long sort of celebration of Strawberry Studios as well, um, sort of an exhibition. And, and I actually sort of contributed some of my photographs from um, yes. from that period to the exhibition as well. So that's quite nice. I know and you don't well, realise you're sort of capturing a, a moment in time. So, I, I used to take camera everywhere. I still do. So it's. God, that's such a good idea because that's because of what I've noticed about, especially the Americans, there was always somebody with a really good, well, good camera, but took good black and white pictures. And now actually there's been loads of book, it's books out in the last 12, 18 months of all these kind of scenes from Boston, Texas and, and New York. And you're thinking, oh, that's clever. So people keep reminiscing about this club in Norwich. And it's like, yeah, but no one took a bloody camera, did they? Christ's sake. Yeah. So, you, you know, because that image, you know, and I know that, um, is it Kevin Cummins? His book came out on the Sex Pistols Christmas Day gig in 1976. And it's like, oh, brilliant idea. You know, so, yeah. you know, if you didn't have those images, it would be just like, well, who knows? But, you know, it's like, oh, nice one, Kevin. Great photographer. So, yes, but your sound is, is very much of its time, isn't it? The, the band was going for a very zeitgeist, really, weren't you? It is. I mean, early on, we were sort of quite influenced, obviously, by, well, the same, the, 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 Monday, the Happy Mondays were in the studio um, at Strawberry recording a lot while Jonathan was there. You sort of do get wrapped up in that whole sort of dance crossover scene or, or whatever you wanted to call it. Um, but we were always sort of slightly different. Um, some, of the, some of the early stuff is quite, it's got, got quite a hard edge to it. Um, it was never, I don't, we eventually got a little bit more poppy um, as we mellowed out a bit, but to start with, we were sort of quite angry and just sort of um, quite determined to sort of, you know, just have quite bold sort of one word song titles and it'd be quite uh, aggressive, but um, we sort of mellowed and got uh, a, bit, a bit more laid back after a couple of singles. So. Yes. But then, you know, I mean, I'm not saying everyone's on ecstasy, but there did seem to be a bit of a wave of people getting into that scene. And I know that there was bands like the Soup Dragons who did brilliantly going from their two minute kind of kind of C86 classic to suddenly, you know, doing their famous song. And then there was yeah. like Primal Scream as well did, did it. And then Happy Mondays from their early stuff that they also managed to sort of get it. And then you had all the bands who wanted to sound like them, which was kind of 
um, yeah. you know, it's just fair enough. Because at the time, I mean, a bit earlier in the 80s, you know, you had that kind of really hard Trevor Horn production sound, which, you know, we, we kind of hate it then and still hate it now because it sounds so awful. So, you know, it's hard not to get wrapped up in the sound of the moment, really. No, absolutely. And it was, um, yeah, it, it's, we, but we never, um, you sort of absorb it as opposed to it being a conscious effort, you know, you sort of, I've spent a lot of time recently sort of listening back to this stuff. You can, you can hear our, our sort of influences and where we've sort of ripping people off. But then a lot of it is, um, I, I, you know, I, I hear some of it, I hear more sort of, <laughs> almost sort of like in excess <laughs> and and talking head and, and sort of late 80s sort of with, with japan we really like japan right. um and yes. sort of even the um um sort of, all sort of gary newman and the, the, the sort of omd all, all the all the early stuff there is sort of the early 80s sort of pop type of sort of electronic music really um, yes. and obviously acr certain ratio we kept being sort of compared to uh certain ratio which is fair enough um we just we just really like what they were doing and you know still do did you get a manager at that stage of the band in the early days we didn't know we sort of looked after a little bit of our ourselves and we signed to a record company that was based in stockport called cuddy um and they sort of looked after us um well, we pretty much did it ourselves, to be honest, which is probably why they spent all the money we got and um, couldn't pay for the album we recorded. So that never came out. <laughs> so, so after that, we got a manager. <laughs> yeah. Yes. And you're, and that first single, I think it's Dig, isn't it? I'm yes, it. yeah. Who, who design? Who was, the, who was the idea? What was the idea? Because it's such a striking image, isn't it? Yeah, that was, um, I actually got in touch with him recently as well, and he, he, he was kind enough to get back to me, he's called Paul Kira. Um, and he went on to design sleeves for um, Suede and quite, quite a lot of other people, really. Um, and so I, um, I got in touch with him, because obviously I've been, I've been sort of looking back through our ar archives um, and trying to get a lot of that stuff online. Um, and so I just, it's, if you've got, when you've got such a striking image like that, it's quite difficult. You can't really scan it. You can't really take a picture of it. So I got in touch with him and there aren't any, people don't have Photoshop files from 30 years ago. And no. um, so when we, we just talked briefly and he, he was kind enough to recreate some of the images for me. Um, so because when the singles were going to be, re-released which they have done recently um he, he recreated the artwork for us he just said look it's easier for me to go and recreate it again and i'll do it and so that was quite nice of him but they oh. actually appeared in um i think that was in an exhibition of sort of contemporary music yeah around the time that the album sleeve so it was do you yeah. know i mean god this is nerdy i never asked this question do you know what font he used for it by the way because that g is so weird I do, but I can't remember off the top of my head. Yeah. It's in our, it will be in our email cor correspondence, yeah, what yeah. the font is. What is the font? I know, this is the most rock and roll question I've ever asked. Um, <laughs> so with the 90s, which is quite, in, it's an interesting period because 
God, I can't quite remember, but Glastonbury at that stage certainly had bands like Carter, the unstoppable sex machine headlining pyramid stage which we still I think that was 91 so there was definitely you know and the orb were there and there was definitely that feeling with the Inspiral Carpets and as we mentioned all those man Manchester bands did you yeah. was did you feel like you the big time was kind of close by a little bit of well it was, it was maybe within touching distance but I think you probably when you're at you probably don't appreciate it at the time, that's the thing, I think, looking back. So I think we played three or four gigs around Manchester, sort of little gigs, and they were sort of quite successful. Or we sort of did all right. Um, and then I think probably our fourth gig, we ended up supporting the Inspiral Carpets um, in Widness, might have been Widness Queen's Hall. Yes. And all of a sudden, we'd gone from playing to, I don't know, 50 or 100 people to you know, maybe 1,500 people um, as a support band anyway. But, and that's a sort of, that was good. That was good fun. That was sort of, um, we did a, I can't remember if we did four or five dates with the, with the Inspirals and then that sort of gets, gets you noticed and sort of you start to dream of the, what could be when you're, yeah. playing, you're sort of playing venues that big and it's, you know, find out that people have roadies and stuff and need their equipment for them. And you, you get your tea as part of turning up and someone cooks for you. So God, I know. That is, that is, yeah. that is, that's more than just a sandwich and, and a packet of crisp and co co cola from the, <laughs> uh, the garage. But then, you know, because you did have a very distinctive bass line, didn't you, in the band as well? The bass yeah. was quite prominent, wasn't it? Yeah, Carl was a brilliant, well, he still is, brilliant bass player. Um, and, yeah, he was just, it's even, um, Dig has got quite a simple um, bass line, which has got just a, a huge groove to it. Um, and that was a little bit of, um, it, it's, it's sort of what we, what we were listening to. It's sort of like... Um, we covered uh, Moody as well by um, ESG, who was signed to Factory in the early days. They're a New York band. And, um, um, yes, yes. That's got a really simple bass line, but it was just something that we we, we liked. And it, it, it's a little bit going back to those, the, the sort of the talking heads bit as well. It's just the grooves. A lot of times, uh, talking heads songs, especially some of the late and stuff, or, or the mid mid period talking heads around remaining light it's all based on grooves yeah. and we sort of were sort of really into that 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 sort of um sort of just jamming for a sort of a long just yeah just trying to get a groove as opposed to a song so but that's not going to get you many hits unless you write them as catches as david bernerice <laughs> or tina weymouth yeah yes well it is quite interesting isn't it because because to write that song which is just captures your attention you know you must realize how difficult it is because you can listen to thousands of songs and you think they're, they're all that all the bits are there but there's nothing that jumps out and then I suppose that's what I found with the Smiths I mean it was like there was there was always little stuff in every one of their songs just about which was quite memorable and then you know like David Bowie again there was lots of things that you just thought yeah that was a good lyric you know and and just to create a song and make it memorable I just think must you know I've never played a music musical instrument or been in a band but I just realized you know you appreciate 
that is really hard, you know, to make that that sort of thing that people want to listen to again. And um, it doesn't come easy. I mean, were you one of the band, a band who used to jam a lot to, uh, you know, to try and get inspiration? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. For God, for hours, <laughs> <laughs> hours, endless, endless hours trying to, and then yeah, then you try and like take snippets of it and cut and paste it together and work it out. But this was. I got to say cut and paste. This was, you know, you were half the time you might have a cassette recorder. You know, sometimes it'd just be, I've found old notebooks with scribbles in trying to work out what that might have been back in the day. Um, See, so yeah, we probably forgot more than we uh, actually put down on record. Yes, I could imagine. And also you did get some good press because there were there was a lot of those other bands I noticed and I've done interviews with various ones of them, like the Wendy's, which I have to say is a terrible name, but um, I hope I didn't say that to them, but it just couldn't, you know, you just couldn't like a band called the Wendy's really. But they were getting on, you know, major festival circuits as well, weren't they? I mean, did you look at those yeah. bands as sort of like kind of not rivals, but, you know, people, you know, your, um, yeah. I think, we're I think we came through we came through with a crop of bands which sort of followed um, the Mondays, the Roses and the Inspirals. And we were lumped in with Paris Angels and Northside a little bit with the Charlatans, but then the Charlatans sort of had the breakthrough single quite early on. Um, and we were, we were just always the, the, the second coming in Manchester, that yes. sort of thing. We just got, whether you liked it or not, um, we didn't really, we weren't, we didn't feel part of the scene, but you know, you're not going to complain if people are writing about you and sort of taking interest. Um, it's just when they found out that you're not the next Stone Roses or you're not the next Happy Mondays, then they sort of a bit further down the line. If you're something a bit different, yeah, um, that's then, you know, but a bit confusing was... for people. Yeah. Yes. But then, you, as you look back, you must realise that Britpop was just, and all those Shine compilations were literally around the corner, weren't they? Absolutely. You didn't realise. I thought it was. I thought it was great for that that period in Manchester. I consider very lucky being around for and being in a band at that time. You know, there's sort of we. There was I. It, the penny dropped when I saw. Um, I can't remember who it was, someone got hold of Rolling Stone magazine. And I know you were talking about the monthlies that came out. And Rolling Stone magazine came out and um, someone, it got to me somehow. And there was sort of like a five page spread on Manchester, on the Hacienda on, and, and our little band from Manchester, Rig, had got this mention in Rolling Stone magazine. I was just a bit like, wow, what's, what is going on here? You know, <laughs> there's, there's a lot of people looking at, these little clubs that we go into and everyone's going to and what we're sort of dressing like and it's sort of yeah it's a bit, bit yes on that yeah, front. I but i don't think we jumped you, you couldn't jump on you couldn't jump on the bandwagon because we were that's how what we were doing you know there wasn't we didn't jump on anything it was just there surrounding us i think we got we got a little bit swept up in it to be honest and that comes to bite you bite you when um you know a year later when everyone's sick to death of manchester and sick to death of everything and then like you say there's the, the musical um the 
the press will go and look at something else then and they've you know Manchester Manchester is sort of um, they don't want anything to do with it and then you can't you know get get a get a gig review or a single review or you know it's they, they're going to look for something else um, yeah. especially if you've not justified it by sort of having hit singles and stuff it is tricky yes because I did um interview with Paul Ryder um you know from the Mondays and he said uh it was that album they did where they went to Barbados wasn't it with Tina and yeah her chap I can't remember the Chris 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 that's it and you know he said there there'd been that backlash because I think there'd been a comment in one of the papers that got taken up as being homophobic or something which would like it was like well we were all off our faces I mean <laughs> who yeah. knows what we were saying you know and it was like god we were last people to be homophobic but you know I, I do remember the enemy suddenly got this sort of right that's the end of the happy mondays and they'd sort of they you know it, it, that that whole episode had gone slightly badly and then factory records had a problem didn't they and uh yeah. And I suppose you got slightly pulled in with that. But then at the same time, you suddenly had all these other bands like Elastica and Sleeper and I suppose My Life Story and and the Wonder Stuff had started happening and the Levelers, they, they were a bit crusty, weren't they? But um, yes, it was, it, was, it was kind of, and Pulp, you know, it was suddenly Britpop-tastic, wasn't it really? Yeah, it was. But that, I suppose that didn't kick off till, I don't know, started to, I think when... 93 i suppose but yeah i think i think the rose is not delivering the album in the, the second album in 91 and then i think by 92 it was um people really were looking elsewhere and and that's it's it's easy to forget that there was there's there was no twitter there was no social media it was um everything you got like you sort of mentioned the, the the start was through Peel, through three weekly music papers, and they controlled they controlled what people um, would, had access to and, and um, reported on. And um, yes. it was to, to fall out of favour. Well, we not fall out of favour. That's the, that's the wrong thing. But you know, if your time's gone, your time really has gone, and it's um, it, it's uh, it can take a lot to sort of try and try and bounce back from that a little bit yeah especially a little bit of a backlash and get lumped into it as well it's tricky it's not good is it no like you said I mean it's kind of a difficult one because because it was kind of for a lot of people and I suppose myself included it seems a bit easier back then because there wasn't this kind of avalanche whereas now you get this avalanche but you don't know where to go to listen to something that you that's been curated it's like John Peel was just so handy that he would just do all the hard work he'd get you know listen to all those African records or reggae records or Bulgarian folk records or you know like death metal indie pop and just get the best of each of that and give you give it to you on the show and it was like oh that's quite nice thank you very much John I know like Gregory Isaacs or the Bundu boys you know it was like but you know (laughs) He he just kind of done done all the hard work, and I you know, and I would I trusted him with my life. So there you go. But then you changed to a new a second a different record label, didn't you? Dead Dead Good Records. Yes. So then we um, we didn't sign for Factory. I think there was um, um, Factory. I think there was. Um, I sort of mentioned it in um, a twist. I asked. I've been writing a blog about sort of the history of the band and stuff. And I asked um, 
our drummer Jonathan, if he could remember anything about signing to Dead Dead Good. And I was like, well, I said, you know, why didn't we sign for Factory? I can't remember. And then we were talking about it. And um, I think uh, Tony Wilson called us, uh, described us as, as um, art situationists from Cheshire. And he said, uh, the choice of signing you guys or Northside, they were a sort of psychedelic band from Boston. Um, so it was said, it said, we only sign one band a year, so it was Northside. And he, he probably made the right decision, to be honest, because they sold a lot of records for them, I think. Yes. Oh, God. Yes, I remember. Who was the other but band? Then, yeah, but yeah. I was just thinking, I was getting them mixed up with another band who's a member died recently, but they were one of those bands who I don't think ever, they kind of got the hype and then it was a bit, they got ridiculed in the press. And then one of the band members died recently. I mean, um, so I think, well, yeah, I think the guitarist in Northside, who's a lovely chap, he passed away quite recently. Perhaps it was him, actually. Was him. What, was their then, famous, what was their famous single? Um, Shall We Take a Trip? Right, it was. I think it was him, yeah. Yeah. But then, yeah, so they signed to Factory and we signed instead to Dead Dead Good, who were only been they've been around as a record store for a few years um but we're just sort of on the up with the charlatans um and and a few other sort of bands and then um, yeah they just took interest in us they sort of like what we're doing they like the, the sort of reworking of moody we had done um which we did with um martin Moscock from a certain ratio um and so yeah they just they just they just picked us up because um, we put put Moody out as a white label um, under our own steam to sort of generate some interest. Because um, because the first record company went bust, um, which was a bit unlucky. And um, so yeah, it was just they, they were good, and it was um, the timing was right. And so I think at the beginning of '91, we went into the studio and did some demos and recorded um, Big Head, which was a, the first single on Dead Dead Good. Yes. Amazing. And then what happens to the band next? So, yeah, well, we start, so 91, we, Big Ed came out in, I think it was about May. And then I think we had another single called Spank, which came out maybe in October. Um, and that was 91. And it did, they came out, they got, I thought the sound was getting, our sound was getting closer to what we wanted to do. Um, we were getting, I thought we were getting more poppy. <laughs> People would disagree um, in a good way. Um, but I think, yeah, that was it. I think it's just run its course. And then by, we played a tour with World of Twist, a great tour in November, um, 91. Um, and we finished up playing the Academy, which is a huge Manchester Academy, which is a huge show um, with World of Twist, and that was fantastic. And that was just be just at the end of 1991. Um, and then we just sort of took stock, really. I think we played and only played one more gig in '92, and then we stuck together, um, and we we sort of decided our name was Mud, always associated with Manchester and tried something different for a bit under a guise of Flatback 4. Um, and we recorded, put out a couple of singles 
and they sort of did okay but yeah by by that point it was probably 93 94 and like you say Britpop was around the corner and it was time to go and get a proper job somewhere oh, no. <laughs> no this is so sad this is um yes so did you have a moment where you sat down and discussed it it doesn't sound like it was a heated shouting match or anything drastic no we were we were in a van on the way to play the princess charlotte in leicester um, and it was great venue we've been there a couple of times before and um, but our van was freezing and I think we stopped at an off-license to buy some whiskey to get warm on the way down. Um, and the gig was okay, but I think on the way back, we just said, do we want to keep doing this? Is, it, is this what we want? And I think we were, I think by that point, we played a lot of gigs. We'd spent a lot of time on motorways, at clubs and stuff, and up and down the country. Um, and you just get to a point, I think we all thought, yeah, let's, try something different I think yes it, it, yeah. it bizarrely it's a bit of a it's a bit of a young person's game that isn't it the motorway the van you know yeah no, by this by yeah by this point we were all probably about 22 23 so by that point well I was splitting the jam up yes <laughs> so, <isn't true>? <laughs> <laughs> you thought so, that's a good, good, good time to run it's good yeah. enough for Paul. Yeah, it's interesting that that world, you know, of having to lug your gear in the house, probably up some stairs at four in the morning, thinking, I'm really questioning. And there were some bands I've interviewed as well who have been around. They've got a fantastic back catalogue and yet, you know, a catalogue of work. And they were sort of, they were so broke, they still had, you know, plastic bags around their feet because they couldn't afford shoes. And it's like, what? Or just eating really rubbish food still and thinking, this is kind of making me quite ill, not in a good way either. So um, I think there was yeah. just lack of money and poverty was uh, was kind of the reason a lot of bands. And there was another one who, anyway, I won't go about why bands finish. But um, yes, so there you go. Did, so did you feel just, yeah, you just had enough? Yeah, and I think it was, I think we'd sort of, I think we got to the go where you'd given it a, a good go. Um, you got a lot out of it. Um, and I realised that looking back now, because um, I was I was always the um, the sort of the librarian of the band, so I I carried a camera with me, like I said before, everywhere I went. I took lots of photos. I kept all the press, um, and it just stayed in my loft for thirty years. And then it was um, it was just recently that I just decided to revisit it and sort of get it all out. Um, I'd always meant to do it, but 30 years on, I sort of turned 50. And this was before the pandemic as well. This is right. the start of, start of 2020. <laughs> it wasn't even a sort of a pandemic-induced sort of look back. Um, so I started to digitise all this stuff, all these photos, all these press clippings, um, and started to put it out there. And then at the same time, um, Dead Dead Good, our old record label from Northwich, um, they started a similar sort of program of um, uh, looking at re-releasing their back catalogue. And so they got in touch and said, you know, would you be interested in sort of getting all the old songs out and you know, looking at the singles again? And so we started that process. So I sort of was, was digging down old master tapes. That's what we're going to do it. We're going to do it properly. Um, so we got all the old master tapes out, um, had them, we had to 
go and bake them in ovens and yes. um, make sure they didn't fall apart, get them transferred, we've got them remastered. Um, and then that's a sort of part of that process. So we, we got our four singles out and, you know, on all the major streaming services, which was, which was, you know, what you think about streaming is, is one thing, but, um, you know, for us to, to finally get our archive and all our songs out there and available to people was, was, was great. So this, we've got the four sing two dead, dead good singles, was big head and spank and then um, we got our debut single dig and then the white label mood we got those all out and then as part of this process we sort of um i was speaking to said that good and i said look well we've we've got an album that was unreleased yes um, that the the first record label went bust couldn't afford to pay for and um, i said i'd love to get it out there so we worked on it we did the artwork um remastered a lot of those tracks put them all together and um so and eventually 30 years on released our debut album so it was uh it's been quite an exciting year sort of looking back and telling the story and 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 getting getting our first album out because that was always a a regret at the time you know we didn't play any of the the big festivals we never made it uh, into europe for a gig which would have been nice which i was ashamed but the big one was the album not coming out. So that was yeah. great to, to, to get that out. I know. It's it is good. It's interesting because I know Cherry Cherry Red Records is that, you know, that big kind of um, organization who puts out a lot of stuff. But I did notice, I've realized there's there's a label that's just started in Preston called Optic Nerve Records, and they've been going back and reissuing or um, putting stuff on vinyl and putting that out. And there was also, I think, Fire Station Records in Berlin. Or Germany, and and there's another small one in in New York. So it's it's great that there's these kind of little labels run by fans who are just very keen to uh, release Absolutely. stuff. So is yours now available on vinyl as well as CD, or is it not on vinyl? I got um, it's they're all available on all, all the sort of major streaming services, the usual ones. But um, I I've got a load of CDs produced. I've not even got around to sort of consider selling them. I just use them for promotional stuff and, you know, send them out. Um, but I know that's the next thing. Well, I would think because it'll, you know, it's just, I don't know, it's, it's whether the interest's out there and you know what, it's probably be me and half a dozen of other people would be really keen to do it. And so that'd be quite a sort of, be something to do for. It would be lovely to, to, to have, and that might be the end point that we get to. Yes. Sort of wrap it all up. Actually always, get out on vinyl. Yeah. Yeah. It would be fantastic. Because I, I do think that there's, you know, I mean we're not talking huge numbers, but there are there are enough yeah. people to make it kind of an exciting project. And and you just know if you remember your 16, 18 year old self, how excited it was to sort of discover something that you think no one else has discovered. And 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 though I know Spotify is one of those things that a lot of people have a love-hate relationship with, it does mean that you kind of discover things from anywhere in the world now, can't you? And you just kind of follow little Absolutely, links. Absolutely, yeah. Yes, I've just got a new band. So it's brilliant that you've got it you know, on your streaming service because obviously people will start sort of picking up on it much more. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm, I'm surprised that, I can't remember off the top of it, but there are some major bands that I would have, you know, thought that aren't on there, aren't on those streaming services. So I do consider ourselves very lucky and very grateful for, for 
and to Dead Dead Good and Steve Harrison for getting back in touch and, and working through getting a lot of those and Phoenix Music internationally helped sort it out for us, it, you know, to get our music out on there. Because, you know, I th- there are some big gaps of bands that from that period where you go, you know, you, they have to be on there. Surely they have to be on streaming services. And it's like no one's no one's put that that time and effort and love into getting that that stuff out there yet for them. So yes, well I know that I think it was another band called Is it the Magic Roundabout? I think they've just got one of their. I don't think they even did enough for an album actually. But they've they've started re reissuing or, or releasing some of their sort of stuff as well as archiving it. And I do think archiving is great, but it is a sort of 25 to 30 year, isn't it? Where you think, oh, that doesn't matter. That just happened and that's life. And then you look back and think, actually, that's pretty good. You know, and it's not, I don't think it's just about rose tinted sunglasses. I do think there is something quite brilliant about stuff that happened during that period. You know, the venues, which I think, you know, it'd be, great that people have slightly remembered and in and documented them and I do think all these kind of programs like the Nightingales or the Wedding Presents, George Best and the Go-Betweens and the Chills, all these films that have come out are just being brilliant and then all these books that people have been starting to write and you just think well actually it's great that you know the the more the obscure the more interesting like the you know like the Rob Lloyd story it's it's you know we've we've kind of had enough of you know the obvious bands it's the kind of the obscure and the slightly quirky, which I find more interesting. Yeah, the Bodines, that was it. Uh, the Bodines, and I, I was I was gobsmacked that I couldn't find the Bodines album on. And there's just just there's a couple of obscure session tracks, but and a couple of their appearances on on compilation albums. But their 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 album that they released, which is fabulous. Um, yeah, it's not out there. So yes, the Bodines. The final out. I know it will have to be. So look, then what happened then? Just briefly, what then? Do you just go back to work or back to college and then reason? You know? Yeah, that's it. I think um, I went back to college because I was um, I was at university and we went on tour for um, when I was supposed to be doing my exams for the first year. So that went out the window. So I, I went back to university. Um, I uh, Jonathan. Um, he was always a sound engineer, um, so he, he stayed in that business for a long time. And then, yeah, just we all just went and had to sort of get make a living, really. Yeah. And what happened? Um, and did you play any more music after then? No, no. That is it's quite weird. It was just um, it was quite a, a cut-off point, really. It was um, we just sort of drew a line under it. Um, and it's not till this year that I've actually uh, picked up a guitar again, which Blimey. is, I just, I, yeah, I, I, had them, I had them in my loft for years, and then, yeah, I suppose that is a lockdown thing, um, and pandemic, but yeah, I got the guitars out again, and then just quickly became obsessed with guitars again. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. yeah. So I've missed out on 30 years, or when I could have been, around so. yes and um i guess the rest of the band you all get on well yeah i mean it's you it's like people it's friends that you've known for 30 years you sort of um we've lived with each other for periods a certain certain time when we we're in the band and after the band and we just you never we didn't have a lose contacts and you just keep you can keep in touch so easily these days it's quite it's, it's 
quite cool. So it's, it's sort very... of not not seeing them obviously since the pandemic, but um, yeah, yeah we, we do catch up every once in a while. It must and be. And they, they seem to. I was going to say it must be quite exciting actually because you've got more of a reason to sort of get in touch because of doing this project. Yeah, and they, um, I sort of obviously I have to ask for their approval because when I was going to sort of start telling the story, it's obviously from um, my perspective and sort of I don't remember everything as well. So I asked them and I always just get, they've sort of let me run with it. Um, getting the blog out there and the stories and they're, they're grateful because there's you know I've got hundreds and hundreds of photographs sort of digitized and edited and and, and press and, and and getting that out there and then on on the music side as well Jonathan obviously he's still in in the business you know as a sound engineer so he he helped with getting some of the um some of the material remastered and he had contacts and we, we sort of got that got that done. So it's been, and obviously I had to get them to agree to the artwork because I take photographs and so the album artwork, we had to, had to get them to agree to what I wanted, but they did <laughs> in the end, which is quite, which is quite good of them with a few changes. So yeah, it's been, it's, I've obviously led the whole project of getting the music and the story back out there, but they've been really supportive and um, yeah along the way and sort of helped me and chipped in and come up with the stories and a couple of reminders oh that's fantastic so your blog this is the one rigband.blogspot.com yes that's one yeah if you just yeah rigband.blogspot.com yeah yes, so, and, yeah and i've just because i've got um sort of nearly 500 items or 500 photos and bits of press that i've not stuck them all on there so it drives people mad but there's some stuff from from that period and even when you start to look at photographs of us just around manchester at that period and you all of a sudden you're looking at the cars and the buildings and the the clothes and the haircuts and you're like wow this is it it does sort of capture a, a moment in time it's sort of fantastic and it's sort of I'm also really um, involved with the uh, Manchester Digital Music Archive as well, which is a sort of online resource for people to upload their sort of um, old yes. photos and stuff. And so um, I'm a trustee with, with those and I got involved with them this year as well. And that's been, that's just a huge, great repository of everything Mancunian, you know, from, from the, from, from the year dot really so it's so and it's what people people can upload themselves so i've been sticking a load of stuff on there as well obviously in, in sort of in tandem with doing the blog and getting some of that stuff out yes well i have to say you know i can spend hours looking at those because like you said it's the clothes the hair the then you see the cars and and certain styles and you think you know it does it does all put it in a different era doesn't it really which you forget and it's kind of also quite funny how we all get led even though we think we're all being very individual, but suddenly you think, oh yes, the haircut of the day and, and the kind of the cut and the clothes and the, the slightly baggy style, you know, and um, yes, there, there Absolutely. is Absolutely, there's no getting away from the, uh, yeah, the Joe Bloggs look. You have all photographs. Yeah, only because they gave us free clothes. <laughs> <laughs> but it's, yeah, there's a certain baggy quality there. So look, if you could have said something to uh, your 18, 16 year old self, you know, 
who was starting out, is, you know, and you've had this experience. I mean, is there anything you would have told them that you, you, you know, you've learned from over the, over the years and reflecting on it? Gosh, um, I don't know that's difficult because you then, um, you take away that naivety, which, which makes that moment so special in the first place. I mean, I was, you walk into this, into that sort of arena or that, that time of your life and just with your eyes wide open and, you know, you're playing gigs, you're making, I remember sort of the first night I was in a recording studio overnight and just thinking my life could never get better than this. And then you, you have, I remember going into Piccadilly Records in Manchester and buying my own record, which is I always wanted to do. And you have those little things of things of that no one can ever take away from you. And it's like to go back and sort of, um, I'd just say, you know, enjoy, savour it. Yes. I, I think, I think I did in, in my sort of own sort of way. And I'm, I'm, I would say take more photographs and I take more photographs of everything from the clubs and the bands. I, t I took a lot of photographs of other bands as well. Um, cause I, I would go and see a lot of gigs. Um, yeah. I, if one thing I would say, take more pictures, but I, know. Um, I, I should have, should have done, um, so. Yeah, so because because there's a lot of bands who, um, well, there's a small record label called Ron Johnson Records, and uh, you know they had a you know they had a quite a good roster of bands for a sort of five years, you know, Big Flame from Manchester being one of them. But he said the problem is there's no kind of film, so whenever there's a documentary, there's you know they don't get mentioned because there's no kind of oh by the way we've got this bit of film and we can talk about Ron Johnson Records, and he said that's. He's been told that's one of the problems. There's just nothing out there to uh, kind of put the story yeah. to link it together. So it's a bit of a shame for the Ron Johnson label. So yes, but then in those days, you know, having someone at a, at a gig with a camera seemed quite unusual. Whereas now you probably can't see the stage for people with a phone in the in your face. So um. <laughs> no, absolutely. And we've got we were fortunate that a couple of our gigs um, got recorded. We've got some footage of us messing around at one gig in Brighton and so I've, I've sort of revisited a lot of that um, and sort of put together videos for, for the new, new tracks that have been released from the album and stuff so that's that's been quite nice as well having a look at the old footage but there isn't there isn't a lot of it you know there's, there's um, yes so like you say access to to sort of you know a video camera that day was was, was, was usually because someone was filming the friend's wedding and had borrowed one and would take it to a gig at the night or something. Yeah, so I know. Yeah, it, was, it was always borrowed. It was always a friend of a friend's got a video camera. So. <laughs> so when you listened back to your material, was there any particular song that really you would think, God, that does stand out? You know, that is pretty impressive. Um, I'm really proud of the reworking of Moody, which we did um, with Martin Mosscroft and... That was interesting because all these sorts of things sort of, sort of started happening. Well, recently there was um, a review of a certain ratio's new album in a magazine called Electronic Sound. Um, and it's a really it's a great magazine. Um, and the, the guy who reviewed the, a certain ratio's album name-checked our version of Moody in the review. And I was just, and for me, I was just like, oh wow! So people, uh, people 
do look back at that period, it's not just me, and they sort of said some nice things. Um, and so I actually got in touch with them, um, uh, this chap, uh, Electronic Sound, he was a deputy editor, um, and said, you know, we've got a new album coming out. And then he reviewed it in Electronic Sound magazine and gave it, gave it a lovely review, which was really nice. So I like, I really like Moody, and I like our, especially like our last single on Dead Dead Good, which is called Spank. Um, that just felt like we were getting to sound like we wanted to sound, which was um, sort of sort of it was the Talking Heads groove and the chic guitar and bass and but with the quirkiness as well. We sort of um, yeah, I quite like that one. Yeah, yes. Were you quite surprised when? Oh, I've got an echo now. Were you quite surprised when you listened to yourself, you know, listening to it 30 years later, thinking mm, that's better than I imagined? Um, yeah, I don't know. Unless you speak to my wife, she says, oh, God, what are you listening to that again for? <laughs> so, <laughs> it's, it's, um, but I, I am, I'm sort of, as a, as a, collection or as a yeah as a, a collective piece of work i think the four singles and the um the album that we we put together um they do stand up you know there's there's some good stuff on it and you get some nice comments on twitter when people knew the album was coming out they're asking if certain tracks would be on it and all that sort of stuff so there's there's a you know a very small audience out there that is just would sort of i don't know sort of pleased I suppose that it's got out but I you know we're not I'm not fooling anyone we, I, I did it for my, myself I did it for um, um, you know my band colleagues and it's just nice to feel like um, you've you've you know you've you've told the story um, and you've, you've got that music out there and and I, but it does um, I think listening back I can tell it was of a certain age but um, it feels like you can hear the influences that I couldn't hear at the time. There's a lot of um, late 80s sort of New York funk and electro stuff that sort of comes through and um, quite quirky. And you don't realise at the time, so looking back with sort of um, with fresh ears on it, you can hear a lot of interesting stuff that we were just trying to do and probably not realizing we were doing it at the time yeah but it sounds it's yeah as a, as a as a sort of collective piece the four singles in the album are very proud of them yeah mm. well it's an interesting time because i mean you had all that chicago house sound and those compilations that were coming out and i do remember sort of john peel playing things like frankie knuckles and and I don't know, love can't turn around. But then we were also, remember, the Prince was huge in that period of the late 80s. He just brought out Sign of the Times and then there was Love Sexy that had also come out. So he'd yeah. become, you know, massive. I mean, there'd been Purple Rain in about 84. So I'm not surprised that you had a funk kind of quality and, and that, you know, there was a New York kind of vibe as well. I suppose that had come out of the club scene as well and and people like, I don't know, was it Jelly Bean who'd produced Madonna and stuff? And so there was there was quite a dance element and and us indie kids had shuffled off into our little introspective, you know, anxious ridden, you know, corners of doom. Whereas, you know, suddenly everyone became a bit more enthusiastic. I blame John Major. He was so good. 
<laughs> and New Order were picking up a lot, bringing a lot of that New York yes. sort of vibe back and a certain ratio. I think Tony Wilson took them to New York to, to record as well. And that's where they bumped into ESG and they recorded Moody where with, with Martin Hannett in New York and they brought the, the master tapes back to Strawberry Studios to mix. And that's when we were overnight working in Strawberry Studios that we would get the master tapes out and listen to them. So we were listening to ESG's version of Moody and then thinking, and then we just started playing it and I think we started playing it in the sound check one night. So you sort of, it's osmosis, all that stuff that gets brought around and then left on your doorstep and you sort of start to pick it up and yes. start to get influenced by it. And we were quite lucky. We had um, Stuart James who'd done some stuff with New Order um, he's, he's sadly passed away now. Um, he produced our album called Perfect that never got released at the time. Um, but he'd done work in New Order and um, he also, he brought um, the keyboard player from Swing Out Sister to come along and join some of our sessions as well. And that was, I just did, I did sort of quite a poppy and different sort of um feel to things um which i was really pleased we got we got the um the album out in the end because it does there's a lot of good stuff on there and i thought it does sort of stand the test of time really oh yes it doesn't sound too um too stuck in the uh, that that sort of um manchester sort of period i could you can yeah i i think it'd be quite difficult to place but that's me thinking the music you produce is timeless. Or <laughs> 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 yeah. well, maybe someone else would just go, no, 1991. <laughs> <laughs> yes. What was the famous, just totally irrelevant, but what was the famous studio in Rochdale that Martin Hannett used to do stuff with Joy Division? Oh, yeah, Sweet 16. And that's where we, we did a lot of stuff in there. Yeah, that was, um, uh, Peter Hook owned, owned that later on. Right. Um, so that's where we actually that's where we recorded the the, the mini album with Stuart in in, in Rochdale. Right. Um, we, we did a lot of stuff. We, we only recorded in two studios, I think, uh, and that was Strawberry and Sweet Sixteen. So the famous yeah. did it was it particularly there was a particular room that someone's talked about that that had a great sound. I can't remember, but I don't know. yeah, it was upstairs. It was sort of. Um, I'm trying to remember it now. The the studio bit was upstairs, um, and it was quite a lively room. I think the the, the, um, the studio was next door to the to the um, the gallery. Gallery. That's my TV stuff coming out. Um, control room, um, and compared, to, it was very different to. Yeah, I think it was very different to Strawberry. Strawberry was everything was covered in carpets. Even the pillars in in the, the centre of the room were covered in carpets. It was, um, but yeah, no, I, I, I shouldn't go on too much about acoustics, by the way, because Jonathan, our drummer, for years, this will kill me. <laughs> and he'll just say you're talking shit. <laughs> so, yeah. no, so I can't. Yeah, sixteen no. is great. I just I just remember the carpets. Yeah, but we all love a bit of carpet, don't we? Home furnishing. Well, that's cool. Okay, well, look, this has been great. Well, thank you ever so much. If you want, I can always send you the link and then you can put it on your Facebook page or link. Oh, yeah, that would be fantastic. Yeah, and I'll, I'll get it out there. Definitely. Thank you very much for, yeah. Oh, it's been brilliant. It's been well, really- thank you.
the power of um, social media websites and platforms. That's what we say. We it's, no, thank you. And I, I think it's great. I think it's great what you're doing. I, th- I love all this, you know, this this sort of, I don't think it's looking back. It's still, because some of our stuff that's come out is new, even though it's 30 years old. People have never heard it before. But it's it's just shining. It's people like yourselves just shining a little, you know, little opening a window for someone into another world yeah well there's a lot there's a lot of stuff i missed the first time which is a bit you know like i had to quickly go and listen to and you think i i kind of know why because you couldn't always hear stuff that easily unless you bought it and you didn't always want to take it to pun but there were certain bands like easter house i missed and i listened to that oh loved easter house i know i always thought easter house were from glasgow and they were from stratford around the corner from me (laughs) that's just and that, that first album, or kind of their only album, but no, that's their first album. I just think, God, they were amazing. I can see why, you know, they yeah. were so influential. Well, you know, I don't know. But they were, you know, they were quite banned, weren't they? So, um, and then they've gone, you know, and you think, actually, some of those songs are absolutely stunning. So, um, yeah, Manchester, as Morrissey said, so much to answer for. Absolutely. Classic yeah. line. Anyway, look. <laughs> I'll let you go, but thanks again for this. This has been amazing. Cool. Well, I hope, um, yeah, I'm used to writing more than talking about stuff, so... Um, oh, it's fantastic. Oh, I think we've got quality chat there. Brilliant. Fantastic. Okay, take care. Perfect. See you I'll later. It made me look good. Thank you very much, David. Love to meet you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. I'm hitting in. Bye. There you go. That's concise and groovy. Well, a bit fumbly. But that, um, a big thank you to Darren Jones, guitarist with Rig. And um, you can find their material. You can definitely find it on Spotify and elsewhere. And uh, do check out their website, which is rigband, all one word, dot uh, blogspot.com, rigband.blogspot.com. And they have also got an Instagram page. Go and check it out. Anyway, this has been um, the C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. If you want to contact me for a nice positive reason, you can on Spotify, iTunes, and um, Spotify, iTunes, Instagram. Yes, you can. Well, I'm down with the kids. Just go to C86 Show. And also, all these have been archived. And uh, you can find those on, um, yeah, Spotify, iTunes, Podbean. I'm probably repeating myself now, but just fumble around. It's all good stuff. Anyway, have a great week and stay safe.